John chapter 16, as we continue our series in the um, Gospel of John. We started this in January. We are nearing the end. We will be finishing, uh, Lord willing, the Gospel of John uh, before Christmas. That's a big Lord willing in there. Big Lord willing. Uh, but we will be going quickly through these chapters. Today we're ending chapter 16, which in the larger context, if, just to remind you, begins in chapter 13 with Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. And it's now coming to a close here, his instruction to just them the night before he is crucified. Indeed, hours before he is captured and arrested to be led away for crucifixion. I mean, mere hours before he has spent chapters 12, 13 through 16 instructing his disciples, preparing them for what is about to happen. And we get to the last little segment of that uh, before his arrest. Now, if you kind of look ahead here, you can see his arrest doesn't happen until chapter 18. So what happens in chapter 17, which we will, again, Lord willing, look at in the next couple of weeks, is Jesus' high priestly prayer. All of John chapter 17 is, and I believe it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible, where he is praying for his people. He's praying for the church. And we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at that. But before he, so we see we're at this kind of transitionary moment. He had, he had begun by washing his disciples' feet and then explaining that to them and then teaching them about his departure and what they're going to need to know. This is, and then he ends with this big high priestly prayer and then he's arrested. So this passage we're looking at today, chapter 16, verses 16 through 33, is the last little word he has for them before his prayer and before he is taken captive. And with that in mind... Let's, uh, let's stand together to read, as I read, John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. These are the words of Jesus. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what, what does he mean by a little while? We did not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while? and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, thank you for your word. We thank you for the very words of Jesus here to the apostles in that upper room. And I pray, God, now in the next few moments as we reflect on the encouraging words that Jesus gives to them, that this would be an encouraging word to us as well. We pray that you would do that by the power of your spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. You may have your seats. Again, Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. He loved them. Chapter 13, it says that he loved them to the very end, to the full. He gives them that parable of the washing of their feet. Gives them a new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. That he was going to prepare a place for them to not be troubled. He had a lot of things that he needed to tell them, but he, they couldn't handle it at that point. But he did tell them that, that unless I do go, that the coming advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. And then last week we looked at the passage just prior to this. And that was how to handle being hated by the world. That the world was going to hate you. And it would be reasonable to think that if, boy, if you're going to be facing a world that hates you, it, it, that could be very sorrowful. It's very hard to uh, muster up the courage in the face of a world that hates you uh, and to not for that to affect you emotionally. So Jesus follows up that warning about the world hating you with this word here in verses 16 through 33. And if we could sum up this uh, how, to answer this question, how worldly sorrow can be turned into joy, it could be summed up in this one word. And interestingly, it's a word that doesn't even occur in this passage, but if you're reading between the lines, you see what this word is. How to go from, to turn worldly sorrow into joy is summed up in one word, 
the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in particular, the great reversal that the, the resurrection brings. Now, let me explain what I mean. Notice the prediction Jesus gives here in verse 16. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Jesus is using a little bit of um, vague language here. And he's letting him know that there, you're, uh, in a little bit, you're not going to see me. But then in a little bit, you will see me. And commentators are really I'm surprised at how uh, diverse the views here. Some are saying, well, it, it's in a little while they won't see him. This is referring to his ascension. And then, uh, then in a little while they will see him will refer to his second coming. Some will say this refers to uh, the coming of the spirit, which is kind of weird because then it's like a spiritual seeing of him. But I think that the most likely interpretation here is what he's speaking of in a little while and in a little while in a little while you won't see me meaning in a few hours you won't see me because i'm going to be arrested taken into trial crucified hung on a cross and then buried but then in a little while after that in three days in the ancient reckoning three days you will see me again at my resurrection i think that that's the the reading that makes the most sense here uh, in this passage. So how do we go from worldly sorrow to joy and rejoicing? It's the resurrection, and Jesus is hinting at it right here. In a little while, you won't see me. Now, the, the disciples, uh, so that's, the disciples on hearing this are just typical throughout John's gospel and all of the other gospels are just a little bit confused. The apostles are just perplexed at what's going on here. And in verses 17 through 18, it kind of records this little uh, you know, again, them talking amongst themselves, which by this point, how many times has Jesus read the minds of the Jewish authorities that were against him? How many times did he read the apostles, you know, read their minds and then <laughs> understand and then confront them with what it is that they were thinking? And it would be kind of like at this after three years, you're still doing this, you know, like you're still doing this. So look at what their their confusion is in verses 17 and 18. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's saying? A little while, you won't see me. And again, a little while, you shall see me. And you can see this uh, where he does this in a couple places. And then they add to this something that Jesus says um, uh, elsewhere. We saw last week in chapter 16. So go back here. Look at John chapter 7, verses 33. Back to John 7, 33. Where Jesus says, and Jesus then said, in the context there, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, saying these, these things about Christ, and will, will the Christ do more? If Jesus isn't the Christ, will the Christ do more things than Jesus did? It's hard to fathom. And the Pharisees heard about these things, and then Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. Turn forward to chapter 12. Jesus repeatedly said this over and over, 1235. Chapter 1235. Where Jesus said to them, The light, referring to himself, is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. 
Notice chapter 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Very similar to the words he says here in this passage. And then notice verse 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And then in chapter 16, verse 10, that we saw last week, concerning, right, he's speaking about the, or a couple of weeks ago, he's speaking about the advocate, the Holy Spirit who is coming. And when he comes, he will convict the world, verse 8. Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So there's a survey of the many times that Jesus has been saying these things. And so Jesus once again is saying, and in a little while you're not going to see me. And they're like remembering, boy, this is like he said this over and over and over again. What is going on? So notice verse 18. So then when they were saying, what does he mean by a, a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. What Jesus, what is he predicting here when he's talking about a little while? Again, reading between the lines, I think he's talking about his resurrection. And what an appropriate thing to, to say with the very last words that he's going to say to his disciples before he prays and then is captured. But to assure them, you're not going to see me, but then you will see me. Like, how can I stress this anymore without using the word resurrection? This is what I think Jesus is saying. In a little while, you'll not see me. Crucifixion, death, burial. And in a little while, you will see me on the third day. The resurrection was perplexing to the apostles. That didn't... It, it, the thought that Jesus could be raised from the dead, it appears from all of this reckoning, it looks like it, they, it wouldn't have crossed their mind. But boy, shouldn't it have? Shouldn't it have? Think back just to John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But they didn't. They didn't understand it. As a matter of fact, in chapter 20, if you look ahead, chapter 20, verse 9, it, it's even after the resurrection, even after they, they uh, John and Peter have this foot race to the tomb and they get to the tomb and it's empty. John records for us in chapter 20, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They're looking at the empty tomb and there still hasn't clicked for them. So Jesus, I think, is speaking here of the resurrection, but I think he's speaking of the reversal that will happen at the resurrection. Notice verses 19 and 20. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so they said to him, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What's interesting is Jesus doesn't explicitly state here. I mean, he could have said, you're, you're wondering what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the resurrection. Dummies. 
He didn't add that. That's not there. But he could have said that. He doesn't really explicitly answer their question, but he wants to say, he goes, but I'm going to reassure you, something's going to happen. Here's the telltale sign. You're going to, on the first time when you don't see me, you're going to lament, be sorrowful, and weep. And you will know that something has happened when that sorrow then is turned into exceeding joy. Jesus doesn't explain it exactly, but he does explain what it is that they will experience. And he frames it in terms of, their, of what the emotions that they're going to have. The resurrection is going to be a great reversal for them from sorrow to rejoicing. Christ's death, the disciples weep and lament and are sorrowful. But notice what John adds here. But the world will rejoice. Because finally, we got him. Right? The world and is pictured even by the religious Jewish leaders who were against him and were seeking to kill him. For many chapters, we've seen this throughout his ministry. They were seeking to kill him. And when they kill him, when they drive those stakes through his feet and through his hands onto that cross, they will finally think from a worldly perspective, we got him. And they will rejoice. But notice what happens when that stone is rolled away from that tomb. And Jesus' body is not there. And the disciples run in and see the empty tomb. That they, they now get experience from sorrow and sadness. That their beloved teacher and rabbi is gone forever. And then the turning of that into joy because he's alive to never die again. Hallelujah, Hallelujah indeed. And not only that, what's implied here is that the world's rejoicing will now turn to sorrow. Because Jesus is now the king of kings. And the Lord of Lords, he is going to, in a matter of time after this, ascend to the right hand of the Father and rule and reign forever. Like we sung about and like we read in Psalm 2. And so the world that was rejoicing that they had killed the Messiah will turn to sorrow unless they too seek the mercy and grace that Christ himself offers. The world rejoices at the death of the Savior of the world. But that resurrection will turn that rejoicing to sorrow. But likewise, for, for the disciples and for Christ's people, the death of Christ will turn the weeping and lament and sorrow of the death of their Savior. It, uh, the resurrection will turn that into joy and rejoicing. Jesus illustrates this with a parable. And what a great parable here. I'm, I'm sure the guys in this room can understand this parable. I think that the moms get this parable. Verse 21. When a woman, so he's giving an apparel to, to illustrate this massive shift that's coming with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Okay. Ladies, 
Maybe you can inform me on this. What's that like leading up to the days of childbirth? Uncomfortable. Give me a couple of others. Restless. Exhausting. Anxious. Nervous. What? Cranky. Because <laughs> your bladder's this big. You know, like this. <laughs> I, I just can't imagine what, what that would be like to, and having witnessed the birth of my children and what my wife has gone through, I cannot imagine. Just cannot, cannot imagine. But notice what Jesus then says. And he goes, but think of that moment. The woman is giving birth. She has sorrow because the hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Ladies, is this true? <laughs> okay. Thanks for the honesty. There's a little uptake. Okay. But, but when they've gone and taken the baby over there, put it on the scale, rubbed it down, and boy, those nurses are confident with those slippery babies. It's amazing. They just grab them two hands, like, you know. And they'd rub them down, and they put the salve on their eyes, and they do the little tests, and they, you know, prick the feet or whatever. And then they hand the baby back to the mother. The joy, right? That, that emo emotional swing that happens there. Jesus is saying, this is, this is what it's going to be like. This is what it's going to be like when you see the resurrected Christ. When you see me, when she's delivered this place, she no longer remembers the anguish, but for joy that a human being has been brought, has been born into the world. Jesus says, so also connecting it to them. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one friends read this 22 and no one will take your joy from you. And I think that this is not only true for the, the apostles that ended up seeing Jesus Christ, but then when we, by faith, hear this word and we know that Jesus Christ is resurrected, that we know that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, that we too share in that joy. The same, the same author who wrote this gospel would write to uh, to other believers, to other churches, and he would talk about their joy being complete. And that joy is complete because, our joy is complete because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The disciples' sorrow will turn to joy for several reasons. One, the obvious one is, well, they love Jesus and they'll get to see him again. They will see the face of their beloved teacher, their rabbi. But it will go, to Kim's point, not immediately, but it will grow beyond just seeing a lost loved one again. As great as that would be and will be, it will go beyond that for a couple of reasons. Here's what the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ will mean. In Jesus Christ's resurrection, the power of God is demonstrated. 
and our glorious eternal hope is assured. I'm not sure if I have this verse on here uh, or not. Uh, I don't. But if you would, uh, listen, or you could turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 20. In Ephesians chapter 1, this is a prayer from the Apostle Paul, and he's praying for the Ephesians that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Okay, so he's writing to a church in Ephesus, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. Perhaps none of the people in the church of Ephesus saw the, the resurrected Jesus Christ with their own eyes, but they heard the word of their salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and believed in him and are now reborn. Even though they haven't physically seen Jesus, they, Paul is praying that the eyes of of their hearts would be lightened so that they can know this, that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is that hope? The hope of heaven. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe? What, what's this based on? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Do you see that? Do you see how he's praying that they would see with the eyes of faith the resurrected Christ and all of the benefits that come with that. The resurrection of Christ, the power of God is displayed according to his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him. And our glorious eternal hope is assured in that. There's many other things that the resurrection of Christ does. It proves that he is indeed the son of God, Romans 1, 4. It improves, it proves that he is indeed the king of kings and lord of lords, Romans 14, 9. Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. The resurrection of Jesus Christ also proves that uh, the death is going to be destroyed forever. 1 Corinthians 15. Those are the facts of what Jesus Christ's resurrection means. But there's something very interesting that, is, uh, that happens when we, we, we must think this. When we think of the actual physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have to remember that his physical bodily glorious resurrection from the dead is directly connected to ours. Directly connected to our full restoration and our resurrection. One of the greatest verses in the Bible. I know there's a lot of great verses in the Bible. But just think of this verse. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What, what a beautiful, concise verse there. Sometimes we might even read it and read right over that. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has great benefits for us as believers. It's the foundation of our salvation. Remember back to John 11. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, 
I know that he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Or Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The resurrection of Jesus Christ for us is the foundation of our salvation. It provides the power for us to live for God. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. A passage that we, you often hear me talk about during baptism teachings in baptism Sunday, that we were buried therefore with him by baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is connected to our resurrection, but it also provides the power to live for God now. The resurrection of Christ, it brings the assurance of our eternal life. Think of the passage that I just read in 614. God raised the Lord. He will raise us up by his power. But let me give you a couple of others here. Following on from Romans 6, 4, verse 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his through faith, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Certainly. First Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and uh, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So prior to this passage, I was just talking about our inherent guilt, inherited guilt from Adam. Here's another passage that's saying that. For as by a man, Adam came death, by a man, Jesus Christ has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all shall die, so also in Christ shall all shall be made alive. 2 Corinthians 4, 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And one more. The Apostle Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. The foundation of our salvation provides the power for living now. It gives us the assurance of eternal life. It also gives us the assurance, the reminder that the resurrected Jesus Christ is sitting in heaven now at the right hand of the Father. It is said many places in Scripture. And as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 
chapter 8, verses 34. You can see this in Hebrews chapter 7 as well. But Jesus is there interceding for us on our behalf. Who is to condemn? Paul asks in that beautiful passage. Who, who is there to condemn us? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Friends, are you struggling? Need strength? You need encouragement to make it through? Let me encourage you to read between the lines here in John chapter 16. Jesus' encouragement to those disciples, which I think in now, after his resurrection, we could see these passages and see, I, we now know what he's talking about. We have joy. We have joy that comes to us because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The sorrow that they had experienced is gone. It is replaced with joy. And that Christ's resurrection means our resurrection. That in indeed we are in fact, saved by faith in him, that we have the power to live for him now, that we will have eternal life with him, and that even now as we struggle in the world today, Jesus Christ is interceding for us on our behalf. How could we not have joy? How could we not have joy that a resurrected Savior is in heaven for us and will indeed come for us one day? Amen. His resurrection and our resurrection should produce joy in us. Friends, we remember that when we get to take the Lord's Supper together, we're proclaiming that gospel until he comes. I think it's so important that we do this and we do this every every Lord's Day when we can, that we take this meal together, that we are reminded that his broken body was pierced for us that his shed blood was for our forgiveness. And then we remember also in John's gospel, and, and whether this is an allusion to the Lord's Supper or not, he says that if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Now, he's not giving some sort of mystical sacramental understanding about this, but he's saying that by faith in me, partaking of me, united with me, which is what Meals back then symbolized and pictured was the union. That's why even pagan temples had feasts there. By taking this meal, we are by faith united to Christ. And we are proclaiming the gospel until he comes. And he will come because he promises to come. So friends, I'm going to pray and then invite you to come to the table and we will take this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have fed us from. And now we thank you for this meal that Christ gave to us that you feed us from. That the truth that these elements convey here, the broken body and shed blood of Christ on the cross, that all who would trust in him would be saved, that that gospel truth can nourish our souls like bread and wine nourish our bodies. And so let's come, 
We come before you now with joy. And we thank you for these, food, these elements that you've given to us. And it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.